Hey friends, this is Shadima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Type A Hippie Podcast, SheCast episode 71, and I'm on with Marcus Collins. He is an old college uh, friend, although we didn't know each other very well in undergrad, but he came back into my consciousness, um, A, because he is a super cute little girl, and B, and that's the more important thing, um, and B is because of his work in marketing and advertising um, really nationwide. And so he's back in Ann Arbor again, as I am, and we were able to connect and chat. And so Marcus, welcome to the Cheekast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited that you're here too. So tell listeners who may not know who you are, um, who you are in your own words. Uh, my name is Marcus Collins. I am a Detroit native, uh, graduate from the University of Michigan twice over, two-time Wolverine. Um, I, I, I straddle two different professions. I have one foot in the world of advertising, where I run the social practice at an agency called Donor. Um, and on the other side, I work in academia as a professor at the Ross School of Business in the marketing department. So I get the fortunate opportunity to put things in the world as an advertiser and put people in the world as an academic. I love that. That is so cool. Um, so yeah, that's how you came back in because you were featured in Ad Age Magazine. Can you tell us a little bit about that and that experience for you? Yeah, I, so I was humbled and blessed uh, to be awarded at age 40 under 40 last year, 2016, it was unexpected, um, greatly welcomed, uh, but definitely a blessing. Um, considering I'm not your traditional advertiser, I didn't start as an advertiser, started the music business and found my way into the Sith that is advertising. Um, and to be, to be recognized by your peers is just one of those things that you feel like you've done something worthwhile. Absolutely. So tell us about your road from Detroit to Michigan and then beyond. Um, kind of how were you able to navigate that? Because sometimes I believe there are misconceptions about the city of Detroit and mm -hmm. uh, the students that come out of Detroit. And I've found them to be inaccurate at best. And so I just want to hear from someone who's a Detroit native about your own experience. Yeah, so I'm a proud Detroiter. It's a part of my identity. I went to public schools my entire life. Went to Golightly from kindergarten to eighth grade, then went to Cass Tech, um, graduated from Cass, and went straight to U of M uh, in the engineering department, uh, engineering school, because that's what I thought I wanted to do. And my first year, I didn't think that engineering was kind of like my, my bag. It wasn't for me. And my mother's an academic, and you know, she, she said, wait till you finish your first year. When you get to your second year, you will take classes in your major, and you will enjoy what you do, like once, once you get out of the weed-out classes. And I went back my second year, and I hated it. And I, like, I, was, I was curious about the engineering side, but I just didn't love it. I couldn't consider myself, consider myself doing it for the rest of my life. And before I went to, to college, I'd... I'd be in a band, I'd sing, I'd play piano in church, the whole nine. So I started taking some music theory courses um, to offset my unfavorable grades in engineering. Um, and sure. I started falling in love with major sevens. I was like, yo, I, this is what I want. I want to be a songwriter. And I went home the summer after my sophomore year, said, mom and dad, I realized what I want to do for the rest of my life. They're like, out with it. Like, tell us, we're excited. So I want to be a songwriter. I want to write songs. They were like, oh, no, you don't. Uh, that's not going to happen, buddy. 
I remember he was saying, like, mom, like, what if I, you know, what if I meet Quincy Jones and Quincy Jones wants to sign me? And my mother said straight to my face, I don't care if Jesus Christ signs you. It's not happening. Wow. Yeah. So I lost that battle and, and I'm going back to school my junior year and I finished my degree in engineering. Um, but while I had my time in the recording studio at Michigan, writing and producing music, um, graduated right after 9-11, the market was obliterated, basically. I figured sure. that was my divine sign to pursue what I really loved. Um, so I started a music company with a really good friend of mine, Mike Muse, who's also yeah. uh, Wolverine, um, an engineer who didn't want to do engineering. Totally. Uh, so we started a company called Muse Recordings. And uh, the idea was about... First, we started kind of developing artists because we'd been recording music for a long time. We started developing artists who we'd worked with from Detroit, people that I sang with in choir and the whole nine. And out of that, we, we created an album that we released and we started meeting people who worked for brands, meeting people who worked for Starbucks, people who worked for McDonald's, worked for Sprite. And they wanted to do things with artists on a very local level and the big, the big labels at that time, they were overcharging to work with like really small artists no one knew. And we'd say, you know, we know the biggest artists in LA, in, in, in Cleveland, we're like friends with them, we can connect you. And our business turned into that. Then we began pairing brands with up and coming artists. And we were kind of like, you know, the middleman between it. We do the, the partnership, we manage it and it'll be our artists and it worked out really well. Um, until the music industry changed in 2006. The music industry changed drastically. And as a result, we had to rethink our business. And neither Mike or, or I were business folks by trade. It was just kind of what we learned serendipitously. So I decided to go to business school to kind of figure out the disruption that was happening in music. And um, I knew that if I was gonna learn it, I should probably work with people who were leading the disruption. That was Apple. My grades in undergrad weren't great, so I know I couldn't really just apply to, to, to Apple. So I figured I'd go get an MBA at a school that recruited where Apple will recruit, and that sure. was Michigan. And I figured, oh, Michigan would understand my GPA wasn't great because the College of Engineering was super hard, um, and I figured my chances were were high there. Plus, I have a very high affinity for Michigan, so it was it was it was kind of a, a double whammy as far as uh, its benefit. So. Prayerfully and thankfully, I got into the business school um, focusing on marketing. That summer, between the first and second year of business school, I went to do partner marketing at Apple, doing partner marketing for, for iTunes, managing our relationship with Nike and our sports music, um, our sports music efforts, um, as well as our college marketing efforts. And it was awesome. It was, it was like a dream come true. It was amazing. I was kind of like right in the thick of things. And at the end of the year, <laughs> unfortunately, the country found itself on the face of a recession. So Apple went on a hiring freeze and my boss said, you did a great job this summer and typically we'd give you an offer, um, but we're on a hiring freeze so we can't. However, because you technically are an employee, we can hire you right now. And I was like, but I have a whole year of business school to finish. He says, well, you can work remotely. You just come back and forth between Ann Arbor and Cupertino. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Sign me up for that. It was great. It was amazing. I'm working for the, my dream company, Apple, who I loved. I'm learning about the industry. At that time, Mike has started working with the Obama, Obama uh, campaign. So he's learning disruption in politics while I'm learning disruption in music. It was just a really, really fascinating time. And by the time I graduated from, from business school, 
uh, there was restructuring on the iTunes group. And I no longer was going to be on iTunes. I was going to be on Mobile Me, which I wasn't really excited about. So I decided not to go back to Apple. I guess you could say that you know the opportunity for me to go back would really exist anymore. So I went to New York to figure it out. You know, this is we're in the middle of a recession. I left business school with 116 grand of debt, no job, and no leads. <laughs> Luckily, I've been working for a year, so I had my savings from working at Apple, and I went to go figure it out. Um, and along the way, while I'm sweating bullets trying to figure out what my career director is going to be at that point, I end up meeting Matthew Knowles, who has a daughter named Beyonce. <laughs> and Matthew says, wait a minute, let me get this straight, dude. All right, so you started a music company, yeah. You're an engineer, yeah. Um, you have an MBA, yeah. You work for iTunes, yeah. And you're black. Like, dude, you don't exist. You it's are like a unicorn, right? Exactly. It's like, you don't exist, man. I was like, no, I exist. <laughs> and he says, you should run digital strategy for Beyonce and all my other artists. And I said, yeah, I should do that. Um, it was great. It's just, it's just like- Marcus, right. did you say right in that moment, I accept, I accept whatever I, I job offer this is. <laughs> I tried to play a cool- uh, do the negotiations part, but he knew I was in the boat. He knew I was in. Um, it was a great opportunity to take what I learned from my my experiences starting music recordings with Mike to what I learned in iTunes, what I learned on the, the business acumen side of business sure. group, put them all together with arguably the biggest artist in the world at that time. I guess you could say she still is. Right. Uh, it was just it was it was unreal. It was it was really unreal. And I enjoyed doing that. It was right right in the I am Sasha Fierce days. So this is like a great time to be in the awesome. Beyonce business. Yeah, totally. As if there's ever a bad time to be in the Beyonce business, it was a good time to be in the right. Beyonce business. Um, but I had the opportunity to work with Solange. Um, Matthew has started a, a gospel label. So I was working with like Brian Courtney Wilson, a lot of other art. It was, it was great. But this is 2009, 2010. I find myself falling in love with, with social as a vehicle that artists can connect with fans and fans connect with other fans and communities and brands. And I just felt like the record industry weren't really tapping into the potential of, of this new media, as we called it. I say the media, the changes in the media landscape. And as I looked at my peers who were working at the Facebooks of the world, the Twitters of the world, the, uh, you know, the agencies of the world, the advertising agencies of the world, I just saw that they were light years ahead of me when it came to understanding this new space and truthfully, agencies were doing a better job or brands were doing a better job of breaking new artists and breaking music than record labels were. And I felt like where I was in my career, the only logical next step was to leave music because where do you go after you work for Beyonce? Like almost everything's a step down, truthfully, right? Unless you work for Prince, you know, Recipes or Bono or something. It's like, it's like you know, where do you go? I just felt like I didn't really have a lot of a lot of runway left in music. So I left music and went into advertising at a, uh, a pure play uh, social agency called Big Fuel. Um, and while I was there, I met Steve Stout, who was a record industry guy who started an agency called Translation with his partners, Jay-Z and Jimmy Iovine. And Stout, you know, Stout is an amazing, amazing guy. And, you know, he says to me, um, I want to start a social practice. I want to build a social practice, which is almost like an agency inside the agency, and I want you to run it. I said, yeah, I'll do that, dude. Um, I came over to Translation in 2011, and I built a social practice. And while I was there, I launched Cliff Paul for State Farm. 
I launched the Brooklynettes for Brooklyn, moving them from New Jersey to Brooklyn. I launched Made in America Music Festival for Budweiser, curated by Jay-Z. Um, I helped with the launch of Kevin Durant and Sprint, Cut Your Bill in Half work. It was just, you know, I made my career at, at Translation um, because the way Steve saw the world and the way the agency, therefore, was manifest was that brands who lead culture are far more successful than those who follow. And I feel like all my life as an adolescent to as a career now as a marketer, I'd always found myself leaning into culture. I just didn't know the words. I didn't sure. know how to explain it. And to hear Stout pontificate about the power that 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 culture plays in commerce is it was remarkable. And you know, it's it, it was like getting another MBA, truthfully, um, working with Stout for four years. And, and I made my career there. And it was right around, so we're living in New York at this time, and we had our daughter in 2014, as you referenced. And we thought about the life we wanted to curate for her. We just couldn't do it in New York, truthfully. And while that was happening, so I'm having this kind of this personal uh, epiphany about my life, I was having a professional epiphany as well. Um, this is right around 2012, maybe. I was thinking about social, and I was running social at the agency. My job was to be the social thought leader, and I realized that I knew nothing about social. And that I thought about social was the zeros and ones, the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, and the alike. But truthfully, social is about people. And I knew nothing about people other than what I knew anecdotally. Um, so I felt like a fraud. I felt like I was like, oh my goodness, I know nothing. And here I am leading the social practice in this agency, and I am um, anemic at best. So I started engrossing myself in the social sciences studying everything from Kahneman to Ariely, Berger, Dunbar, Watts, Keith, Freud, Young, Milgrams, Ash, and to, to try to create a populace of intel that I can apply to my work as a practitioner. And what's happening is as I was becoming better on the academic side, I was getting better as a practitioner. And the better I got as a practitioner putting things in the world, the more curious I got as an academic. And that balance became... Uh, the focal point of my practice as, 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 a, as a marker, as an advertiser. And I started teaching when I was in New York, uh, teaching at NYU, teaching at Hyper Island. And when we decided to leave New York, we said, let's go to Michigan. I, I found a position at the agency I work for now, donor, to run social practice here. And while this was happening also, an opportunity to teach at my beloved U of M open as well. So... I'm now, I now do that. I get a chance to put things in the world as an advertiser and also work on the academic side um, at, as, as a thought leader, if you will. And that's kind of the, the long-winded run-up from just a kid in Detroit who one would think would have a different path than I have. Totally. No, it's, it's so awesome and it's so um, inspiring to hear. I I feel like I have the best job as a podcaster um, because I get to actually really listen to someone across from me and be inspired. I almost feel selfish about it. And I don't have to think about what I'm going to say next in response, right? I can actually be present hearing you. So as we you were talking, um, one thing that kept coming up was culture. And uh, I wanted to kind of touch on that with you in terms of culture, because on our pre-call, we were talking about race. Um, and, 
even though it's a socially constructed concept, Mm -hmm. it is a very tangible concept, um, especially if you are a person of color and, um, and, or are in another, yeah, person of color and marginalized communities, I would say, but right. Um, so how has the culture of race, um, played a role in your experiences? Because what I do hear is someone who's a go-getter, someone that has been able to successfully parlay all of their life experience into the next thing and continuing to work um, to improve yourself as a person holistically, looking at not just one side, but all of the sides, which is a pretty powerful a very powerful thing. So how has race um, had an impact on your path, your journey? I I find myself in two professions where um, I am highly underrepresented. Sure. Um, On the academic side, there aren't a lot of instructors. So I don't have a PhD, so I'm not a full- Sure, professor. Mm -hmm. tenure, Tenure track professor. And even just even as a lecturer, even as a lecturer, I'm still a very, 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 very small um, representation in the populace. But then the thing is actually off-putting is that so beyond the fact as an academic or as a professor, I'm low representation in the classroom. There aren't a lot of us either. I know. So I'm constantly reminded of how. I wouldn't even hate to say unique I am, how much of an anomaly I am. And that's just heartbreaking. Um, And because I'm as aware of that as an individual, I ensure that my pedagogy and the material, the content that I bring forward is that they're not going to be, it won't be a a pink elephant in the room. Sure. I make sure that it's very much clear and present. And you superimpose that with in advertising, African-Americans are extremely underrepresented in, in this industry as well. And I've been fortunate enough to find myself in a senior position. And the, the downside to that is that I'm one of very, very, very few, not just in my organization, but in the industry broadly. And it's like, I can't get away from it. And I suppose that is a, a necessary consequence that is something that I can't be oblivious to because it makes me responsible to have to make sure that it's either laced in what I bring forward as a practitioner or as a lecturer, or it becomes my job to make sure that I care for those that are here so that they can care for the others that come behind them and try to open the door for more people to come. But even the way I see the world, it's informed by not just race, but the culture I subscribe to. So as marketers, we spend a lot of time identifying people, right? You know, it's that, 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 the, the eloquent saying is that good marketers see consumers as real life human beings having all the trappings and dimensions that real people have. But the truth of the matter is that when marketers describe people, we use demographics to describe them. Mm-hmm. Race, age, gender, household income, we, we reduce them to these, these boxes. Sure. And while they're true, these things are true, they don't accurately describe people. For instance, you see my demography, African-American male, um, uh, 38 years old, born and raised in Detroit, 
um, went to public schools my entire life, if someone saw that, if a marketer saw that on a brief, they'd say, oh, he must talk like this, walk like this, act like this, buy these things, hang out with those people because that's just what those kind of people do. And it sounds awful to hear it said verbally, but these are the decisions that marketers make all the time. Um, and as a result, it, it has a massive impact on how marketers bring things to market. So what I do, both as an academic as well as a practitioner, is that I poke a hole in that. Because the first thing I, I, I take a jab at is that while, yes, I am 38 years old, yes, I am black, yes, I am male, and yes, I did go to public schools my entire life, those things may be factual. They don't accurately describe me. They don't, they, don't, they don't give rise to the fact that I grew up playing jazz as a kid or that I swam competitively from six years old to 18 years old, which is a huge stereotype break because black people don't swim, as they say, right? Or right. that I like to sail. Again, another huge stereotype break. And I, am, I try to make my coworkers, my clients, my my colleagues in this industry broadly really have to face that truth that while we put people in boxes to more, more efficiently describe them, we don't actually describe them. And that's why our, our marketing efforts don't work, which is a, which is a very close parallel to how we as human beings, as civilians in this world, we put people in boxes and that's why our civilization doesn't work because we don't accurately describe who people are. Yeah. Well, and I, I really appreciate you saying that because it lends itself to a larger discussion of how we're not really in relationship with one another. You know, one of the things that you said early in this recording is that um, you like to work in terms of culture, but real culture, you know, which entails or encompasses relationship. And so, I do understand from a psychological perspective the propensity to put people in boxes because it's easier to quantify, it's easier yeah. to delineate, it's easier to categorize. And yet, someone like you, someone like me, we don't sound like what, I mean, I can't tell you, and I'm sure you get it all the time, how articulate we are. And that's not really a compliment, friends. So if you say so that, well. just, you speak so well. Um, that's not really a compliment. No, not um, at all. <laughs> you know, um, I played violin. I played piano. I went to Interlochen Music Camp. Um, I went to Blue Lake. Summers and then right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's just, and our parents were, each of our parents, it seems like both sets of parents were really, um, invested in, you know, how well we did mm -hmm. um, and a, from a holistic perspective, but definitely academics was at the, one of the top, you know, being a good human was number one and character, yeah. but number two was definitely academic. Um, I wouldn't even say prowess, but, you know, you will go to this school and you will do well, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and, and faith, I would say is probably up there as well. And so, the sad truth is that sometimes people don't even get an opportunity to sit at the table or get their foot in the door because these stereotypes come up. And when they are there, um, the next question I wanted to ask you is how do you, I was talking with my mom the other day and we were saying that little thing. So if I, as a woman of color, as a black woman says something, I might be deemed aggressive. 
mm-hmm. when a white woman counterpart or a white man or someone else says it and they say, oh, they're just being assertive. Same statement, same intonation. Um, and that is a problem. And so how have you been able to successfully navigate um, what you described as being mindful of who you are in a space that's oftentimes a white space and bringing in information um, so that students, all students really get a greater picture of how the world actually is and the students of color, the few that are there and speaking of which offline, I'm going to, um, make an email introduction to a student that's in the B school right now that I met, um, who's really amazing. Um, he's a really great, um, person. So that's aside. Um, and that's what we need to do, right? We need to introduce each other to good people. It's our Um, responsibility. It is our responsibility. A reasonable service. That's right. That's right. So how have you been able to kind of walk the line of maintaining who you are mm-hmm. um, and being true and transparent and authentic there and also having this greater responsibility that not everyone experiences, yep. but I know what you mean when you say you have a responsibility. Um, it's kind of that paying it forward type of deal. Right. Certainly. So how has that been for you and how have you been able to do that? So I have been purposeful about being as 100% Marcus as possible. And this is the interesting part. So when I went to business school, I felt extremely underprepared. And uh, I, I, I feel like I was only here by grace. Like a part of me felt like I didn't belong here. You know, my, my colleagues, my classmates were brilliant people who had done amazing things. Like they were literally, I was a rocket scientist in my class. Like the guy was like just really smart people. And I'm like, I wrote love songs for a living before I got here. And y'all, they were practically cure cure cancer. You know, like, I don't belong here, you know? And what I would did, because this is what, as you mentioned, that we're kind of taught to do to be successful is to assimilate, right? Like I'm going to learn how to talk. I'm going to learn the vernacular of business. I'm going to learn, I'm going to mimic speech patterns like everyone talks with the vocal fright like everyone talks like this like everything has a question at the end of it as opposed to like how i normally talk and what was happening is that i was trying to maintain some of my identity while trying to assimilate and mold myself into what the business school person the business school student supposed to be and I, i think i was failing at it miserably in fact i remember um when I was at Apple and I was trying to like learn all the right words and blah, blah, blah. And my, my manager would say, what are you saying? Like every time I talk, he'd be like, what do you mean? Like, what do you talk? What do you mean? What do I mean? Like, listen to the words I'm using. And he'd say, you need to be surgical with your words. And I began to develop a complex about it because I just wanted to do the right thing. So I'd so passionately, I wanted to use the right words with the right in, in, in inflections and the, 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 the right, the right implications that I said, you know what? I'm just going to be Marcus. I'm going to say this the way Marcus would normally say it. And I am learned, so I have a vocabulary. I'm just not going to use the same kind of words that other people would use in this case. And as I'm learning from being on the job, as well as in school, I'm developing and building the business vocabulary, but I'm going to make sure I'd say it in a way that is completely Marcus. And the, when I started doing that, A, my confidence was just through the roof. Like I felt so much more in charge. I felt so much more in control. 
and I felt less like I had to put on a particular persona. I had to, I didn't feel like I had to, on one hand, I didn't feel like I had to be someone that I'm not. And I also didn't feel like I had to be um, uh, a caricature of who I am. Like, I didn't feel like I had to shuck and jive. You know what I mean? Um, So I just feel like I just say the way Marcus would say it. And it's interesting, and this is a bit detour, but it gets back to the point. Like, as a kid, as a swimmer, as a guy who went to band camp, I felt when I was with my peers in Detroit, like I was like the white boy of the black kids. And then when I was with the white kids, I couldn't be more black. And the part is kind of, it was the struggle of like my identity. And as I became Marcus as an adult, I told myself a third person, but as I became more of who I am as an adult, I began to say, it's, it's totally fine to have, to straddle the line. Like, yes, I grew up listening to the monkeys as much as I love Kanye West. And that's totally cool, right? And I use vernacular that may seem like it is, has no place in the boardroom while it seems completely fitting in other places. And that just became the way that I conduct myself in the office as well as in the classroom. So while in the classroom, I'll talk about Daniel Kahneman and confirmation bias, which is why we put people in boxes because cognitively it's just far easier for us to, to truncate things that way because that allows the brain to be much more efficient because we only have so much cognitive power each day. So we try to make sure that we can ration it out well and using our, you know, using the, the autopilot of our brain to block, the blocks people makes it very easy. And while I'm talking about Daniel Kahneman, I'll throw a Kanye verse in there. Like I'll do references from, from uh, Dave Chappelle sure. because those are things that make me who I am. And the hope in the, in the classroom is that students say, this is far more digestible than just hearing it from the text or hearing it from the academic language. But this is a parallel that makes a lot of sense to me. In the boardroom, hopefully the, the idea is that I demonstrate a knowledge of what I'm doing, but also put it in a way that's so radically simple that anyone can digest it and that's the whole purpose of communicating that what i'm trying to what i'm trying to send is received and translated in such a way that we see the world similarly and being marcus i.e being my full self bringing my full self to work both in the classroom as well as in the office has been one of the most rewarding and beneficial things I could have cognitively committed myself to. I love that. That's so awesome. It's, it's refreshing to hear. And um, I hope that listeners feel as empowered and as inspired to continue to do that in their own lives as I do, because the world doesn't need one more Marcus, right? The world needs just the one Marcus that we have right here that's, you know, that I'm speaking with. And, you know, everyone, it's an encouragement for everyone to be who they are and continue to hone who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, don't be anyone else. That person's taken, you know, just be <laughs> right. right. The best you. Um, and, and that doesn't mean stay, remain stagnant, you know, continue to build, continue to grow, continue to learn and listen and ask questions, the easy and the hard. Uh, so one last question for you is how do you self care? Uh, so I, I would say, um, the most important thing for me is my relationship with God. And that I, like, I'm not, I don't, I don't take 
as good a care of myself physically as I should. I'll make it to the gym <laughs> as often as I should. I have a high proclivity for burgers and pizza, which doesn't help the waistline very much. Um, but you mentioned this, we talked about your parents, you know, on that list of things that were important was about being a good person. And for me, it, being a follower of Christ to the best that I can, uh, being honest, faithful, and true to my, my relationship with him, as well as myself, I feel is what has given me long days, which is, has extended my life in such a way that not only have I been blessed to, to do some things that one probably say I probably didn't deserve, um, or certainly statistically wasn't meant to have, but I have mm. crossed paths with amazing people like yourself who want to make a dent in the world. And, mm. you know, as Christians, you know, we're told that our job is to be a light, right? To love God with all our mind, soul, strength, and to love each other. And I feel like I have taken on the responsibility of being a light. And in doing that, I feel like I have peace, I have joy, um, and, and, and I have happiness when it comes to, we see the, the, the walls of the world crashing down on you in today's political climate, in today's cultural climate, you know, I, I have rest. And that for me, that, that, that peace of mind is better than any gym workout any tofu recipe actually I should be instead of, instead of burgers. And that's how, that's how I take care of myself. Every Sunday I'm, I'm in the church sanctuary. Um, and every day I try to be prayerful and try to commune as much as I can. Even when I was living in New York, you know, I, I, so I've, I've been going to the same church my entire life. Even when I was living in New York, I come home once a month to make sure I go to church because that man cannot live by bread alone. Right. And I feel like for me, that, that has been the most important recipe in any success that I've had, both professionally and personally. And I try to nourish that part of me as much as possible. That's awesome. That is so, so, so cool. Um, yeah, no, you are, you are definitely one of those people that um, the humility shines through and you're a light because whenever your posts come across my feed, and it's not often, but when they have, and you've been even just sharing something about yourself, everyone rejoices with you. And, it's, and, and you can determine that by, yes, the likes or reactions, but that's the thing. Like when we share about ourselves and people engage and you're actually in relationship or people, I mean, I think about it for myself and some of my own personal struggles. And there will be a time that I will share some great news with people. And I know people who have been praying for me in these areas will be really excited. And I think that's, that's what I see manifesting. Um, and it's, and I attribute it just even in this hour that we've spoken um, or 45 minutes that we've spoken, I attribute it to what energy and what vibes and what, um, what you put out into the world, into the universe is what's coming back to you. And so people really are invested in what you're doing um, because it inspires them, it encourages them. And, um, you know, these things hopefully multiply, you know, these conversations that we had, one-off conversations, one-on-one -on -one conversations, even larger scale conversations, they multiply. So I'm putting in a wish list. I want to get you and Mike to come on the podcast. 
Absolutely. And kind of chat. Okay, awesome. So I'm going to I'm going to count on you to help I'll me get, make I'll, that I'll, make I'll spring make, up Mike to make it happen. Make that happen. That would be awesome. Yeah, because I it is important to hear perspectives um that are not always um shared and I think that having people who live and exist in marginalized community, it doesn't mean that they don't connect with non-marginalized community folk. That's not what I'm saying, but there is something to be said about, we need to be hearing more voices. We need to be hearing a diversity of voices and equity of voices and um, people need to be included in the conversation. And so that's one of the reasons this podcast came to be. So thank you so much for being here and taking time out of your busy schedule to thank you for having me connect. Thank you. Um, so I will include anything, um, some of the stuff that Marcus has shared with us in the show notes so that you can follow along, um, with that. And I will also get from him the link. Hopefully there's an electronic copy of, um, him being in uh, Ad Age Magazine, the 40 Under 40. So I'll include that as well. And then just a couple of short stories uh, from Humans of New York, because I love it. And it turns out Marcus enjoys this book too, or the their social media. So someone wrote, so much of who I am is because of Dr. Seuss, which is enlightening, right? Mm-hmm. So Friends continue to get newborn babies, <laughs> Dr. Seuss books. So they have that in their collection um, as they grow up. And then this appears to be a young boy in like a garden. And it says you have to be really focused and find a rock that is big, but not too big. And you lift it up. And if there's not any bugs, you put it back down. But if there is a bug and you like it, you put it in your bug jar. But if you don't like it, you put it back and put the rock back down. I found a ladybug, a beetle, and a little tiny bug that I don't know. So he's focused on the task at hand. I'll show you a picture, Marcus. I don't know if you can see. I like, I like. <laughs> right? This cute little boy. <laughs> so, all right, friends. Um, thank you as usual for the support and the love. Definitely. Um, Share this podcast with other people, rate and review it. And I'd love to hear from you about who you want to have on the podcast next next, or what you'd like to hear about. And I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I'm in that place in me, there's only one of us. So have a gratitude-filled day. Thanks again, Marcus, for being here. Really appreciate it. And everyone, until next time, my name is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and this is the Cheekass, episode 71. Take care and namaste.